So taking taking a step back to consumerism, I, I have the benefit of knowing a little bit about what you do, and 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 I'm saying a little bit. I know a lot about your perspective, and and I want to get into your specific perspective with what plant sponsors can do. When you started off the conversation today, you were talking about breadth of network, right? You're talking about the the old approach is we want to have everybody in network because the fear is the CFO at a given company's favorite doctor who happens to be terrible and doesn't practice evidence-based medicine and costs eight times more than the physician down the street that's practicing evidence-based medicine has to be in network because if it's not, if that doctor's not in network, someone's going to be upset, right? So, right. Yep. and I'm oversimplifying, of course, for effect, but, but that really is, that really is the, I remember when, again, when I entered the industry, we got the biggest network and we've got the deepest discounts, right? Discounts though, don't matter in an arc of care. If you go to a physician who who's going to prescribe more care in a fee-for-service model, right? So if I need to have my hip replaced and I go to the physician that has a high infection rate or always orders the extra test or two or 10, or has many more people in the OR than is evidenced by medicine that we have to pay all those salaries. I don't care about the discount because the arc of care is going to be way more expensive than going to the freestanding hip replacement clinic. Does it, you know, like a factory, but does it like a factory because they do it incredibly well, right? And they know, you know, they, they're, they're specialized, but I want to get to this concept of consumerism at the plan level. Right. Yeah. Where in a, you know, we have this breadth of network where everyone's in, right. And, and very minuscule tools that we give to families and individuals to navigate that ocean of decision making. What does a modern approach look like to you, Mason, when you think about building a plan design, layering in some interesting, perhaps primary care opportunities? But what, let's talk about a modern approach to, to building a plan where, um, consumerism is is really you know the driving the driving thought process here. Help me remember to get back to that because one thing I did realize I overlooked you you described the high deductibles and the health savings account piece where we're going to put skin in the game at the individual level. That was an excellent description of what we tried to do, and the reason it failed is we did not give those patients, we may have created a financial vehicle for them to have that skin in the game, but they had no idea how to spend that money or not or save that money because they didn't know which doctors to go to, et cetera. They didn't know when to take care of themselves. If they were diabetic, they needed a different level of care than if they were generally healthy with you know, a well-oriented. So they were all over the board and those high deductible plans simply shifted costs from the employer to the patient. And then ultimately patients have a pretty poor track record in those plans of paying their portion because frankly, it can add up to be very high expense and they don't have savings that can support it. So there's a lot of medical debt out there, which is conversation for another, another day, but it's a real problem with the way we're financing it by pushing higher and higher deductibles and co-pays on patients that don't have the ability to do that. And the doctors don't get collected that. And so they raise their prices on it. It's a cycle that is, is negative. At the plan level, it's not the first seven. I mean, when, it, when just doing my job on a daily basis and I see plan data, it's not the first $5,000 of the deductible that blows up a plan right? It's the next million, right? It's the next, it's the next 500,000. And I, I just, you know, I remember, and I'm, I'm sure anybody who listens to this, who's ever been in a high deductible health plan, I like them for the right person, right? I like high deductible health plans for people who a have money to put into an HSA 
and B have the tools in order to navigate a, a system and 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 be effective. But but more often than not, I like them for people who don't use a lot utilize healthcare all that often, right? Uh, you're yeah. you're 25 year old who who is in good shape, starting out their career. Um, doesn't necessarily serve, doesn't necessarily um, engage with the healthcare system all that often. It's a way for them to pay the least amount in premium and have the most amount to put aside to save for future healthcare costs down the road. So it's basically a catastrophic coverage. Um, you, yeah. I mean, you, you got it. I, I remember being yeah. young and being in a high deductible health plan and going to a primary care physician and getting a, a bill for $110 when I didn't have $110 and saying, mm-hmm. shoot, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> you know, so, so, yeah. so I think, you know, there's some unintended consequences and, and cost cost explosions that come from that type of ecosystem. Fast forwarding to where we are now and what our understanding is now regarding that cost shifting to the employee, what does a true value-based health plan look like in your, in your estimation? Two places I think that we want to focus. One is the primary care and the second is what I like to call a downstream care uh, specialty and all. But those two things are, are, it's important that they work hand in hand. So the front end primary care knows and has good insights and information about what the costs are, what who the better doctors are, how should the care be managed going forward. And then that team, once that care is provided for that condition, make sure that the primary care doctors is informed on a closed loop, if you will, so that they can work together as a team over time. Frankly, the ACO that you asked me about and I described earlier was intended to have primary care and specialty care physicians actually share their electronic health record information about each of the patients in their population so they could do a better job. And frankly, if the primary care doctors ordered a, an A1C, the lab test to test for diabetes, the specialty doctor doesn't need to order the same test two weeks later because they, they can share the outcomes. Often that doesn't happen and both tests have to happen and the patient gets stuck twice and all those things. So the inefficiencies that come from the old model have the potential to be eliminated if we can operate better as a team. So let's go back to the primary care side. I am a big proponent and we have seen good results, albeit limited because the capacity is, the access to this model is not widespread, but what we call direct primary care, DPC. Of course, we've got to have an acronym for everything. But that basically is an employer that says, I'm going to hire a company to provide primary care services to my workforce on a subscription basis rather than fee-for-service basis. And a subscription basis would simply be kind of a population. I got a thousand people that work for me. I'm going to give them no copay, no deductible. If you go to the direct primary care team that we've hired and maybe even put on site at our plant, Um, you can still go to your own, but you got to pay your copays and deductibles. In other words, they create disincentives for people to opt out. And uh, and instead, they want them to go to the, the company doctor, if you will. And the team, often the Primary care, direct primary care operates in a team model, not just a physician only kind of model, but a lot of very effective and high value, high quality medical, clinical professionals that aren't necessarily the doctor. They're the nurse practitioner, physician assistant, and the nursing team. They can often know a lot about what's going on with someone and help keep them on track with their diagnosis. They also know very well when to bring the doctor in and get the doctor's expert use of his or her knowledge when it's needed. 
that doctor doesn't need to spend time diagnosing and seeing the runny nose. You know, a nurse can handle that appropriately, clinically, effectively. But the nurse will know if this patient has some other complications or comorbidities in their file, and they'll know when to flag and get the doctor involved. That's the, that's the team game. So they subscribe and do a direct primary care model with an employer. Those doctors uh, and team members in that model are measured by the outcomes of the health of that population in terms of gaps in care identified and filled, patients with good access that are able to stay at work. They don't have to go somewhere else for the half a day to see a doctor, but they can see that doctor. The uh, chronic conditions that are identified in that population, that team is proactively touching base with those patients to make sure they're staying on track with the risk involved in their condition. So it's being cared for in a, in a much more proactive way. You know, my brother works for a very large Philadelphia-based cable company uh, that shall remain nameless on this call. I'm sure uh, they're if, popular. If you put yeah. your thinking cap on, you might be able to yeah. deduce who they are. And um, look, I, I'll say what I say about their cable product, but from a population health management perspective, they are a gold standard, right? Mm -hmm. On-site pharmacy, on-site clinic, gyms, healthy lunches, all of that stuff, right? That, mm -hmm. the, the great investments they make in their employees. If I were to use a direct primary care model and try to equate it to something, it's, a, it's essentially playing money ball for a smaller company that may not have the funds to do with that large cable company with you know 100,000 employees is doing on-site. It's essentially money-balling that on-site experience, even if it's not directly on-site. You're removing yeah. a substantial barrier to primary care. In your experience, when, when this is unrolled at a small business, what does the adoption look like? What you know, Is there skepticism? Is there uh, concern? Does it seem like, hey, like, you know, my employer is offering this, what's their angle? Or, or does it seem like it's, it's fairly well accepted when it's rolled out on-site as a, as a benefit? Yeah. And again, Scott, it's inconsistent at this stage of evolution in that world. I have seen and truly believe that they, the model itself, if properly designed and structured, can work very well. The number of examples and the amount of data that's out there for a smaller employer using a DPC model, the impediment to that happening is simply getting, if you're going to run a DPC clinic, you need a critical mass of patients that are being steered towards that clinic in order to support the staff and the team that I described, because they have to have capacity, they have to have access to take care of a, a population of patients. So if an employer's got 100 employees, they've got to have 10 more companies like them to use a DPC clinic to have 1,000 employees going to that clinic to get it started with the critical mass necessary. And so consistently managing that approach makes tons of sense. And it will make sense over time when it gets stronger. But it's been a, it's not the conventional model. Uh, the companies that provide that, you know, have to go out and recruit and hire that clinical team, including physicians from other uh, more traditional models. So it, it's not a simple thing to roll out. So it's not widespread at this stage. It's much more like your cable company in Philadelphia. It's the larger employers that are figuring out ways to make those investments work. And even some of those folks will not stick with it all the time because it does take some time for those things to start to really settle down and lower the cost trends that those healthcare costs are, are driving. So it's so, a good question. I don't have a great examples of that working broadly. So so what I can say is in our, our neck of the woods, uh, in the mid-Atlantic Northeast, direct primary care has been a later market to the game, but it is growing. 
Yeah. And the interest yeah. in it is growing substantially. I can say when we go down to DC, the lobby for policy down in, in on behalf of One Digital and the clients that we serve, there is a great interest in expanding incentives for direct primary care on Capitol Hill in a bipartisan fashion, which is, is not something I get to say very often. But when I think about direct primary care and where I start to get really excited is one, I like the idea of removing barriers to primary care. Any barrier to primary care that we can remove is money well spent because you want people to treat, you don't want them to ignore conditions that you know, may be relatively mundane that they drag onto the work site and they, they may not be as productive as they could be. They not, may not be as engaged. We use the term presenteeism, which can ultimately snowball into absenteeism or turnover. We, you know, we want people to seek primary care when they feel they need it and when they have conditions that need managing. But where I really get excited about it is, you know, look, I, I, I'm, I'm Philly centric. In Philadelphia, we have a major research hospital. University of Pennsylvania. And I'll name them by name. We have UPenn in our backyard, which is a world-renowned hospital for a lot of reasons. They do a lot of interesting stuff, research, good stuff. But the idea that every great physician in Philadelphia sits at Penn would be a fallacy, right? There are still some physicians through consolidation and growth that may not be the best fit for a given condition. Where I get excited is what can you do with direct primary care to steer utilization to the best doctor? I mean, what can you do with that type of arrangement to potentially take the consumerism to the next level of, hey, this person has a complex condition. They're going to need a specialist. They're going to need specialty care. How can we help guide the individual to achieve the best outcome and, and manage costs at the same time? You're getting at the downstream piece of that team that we described earlier. So we covered the deep PC side of it. That team has a patient that needs to be seen at the next level or downstream, whether it be orthopedic, depends on, it, it could be any number of specialty areas, but cancer need, or oncology, yeah. orthopedic, you know, all, whatever, all whatever it may be. Yep. Right. And sometimes it's a matter of this patient's got these signs and symptoms and conditions. We're concerned about some risk of this could be a malignancy and it could be something else driving it and making sure you get a good team that will look and objectively see that patient, you know, and, and make a, a high value correct diagnosis so that care can be also be accurate. Misdiagnosis happens far more often than people realize because it's hard. It's not just because people are, it's not ill, Ill will typically, it's just hard stuff. But the downstream team is far too too often, and I don't know Penn that well, but if they're like the other academic medical centers with wonderful reputations that do great things from a research perspective, they are not bastions of efficiency. They're trying to teach new doctors, so that brings in extra stuff, and they've not gotten themselves well-equipped with good information about what things cost, what the cost-benefit is of certain things. They thrive in a fee-for-service environment where they can do things and find out what works. And they tend to over-diagnose, over-test, over over-treat, over-diagnose because that's part of, because they can, if I can be so simplistic. And no one's ever challenged them to say, hey, are all these things needed and necessary? Let's go back and look at what works and what doesn't. And let's do things in a order of priority that's clinically driven, evidence-based and cost-effective. And they've never needed to do that before. So therein lies the opportunity to create some different models. It, it doesn't apply to everything in healthcare, but for lots of procedures, you can really benefit from sitting down, using your data to find out which physicians, which practices provide care in the most cost-efficient way clinically, who has complications, infection rates, et cetera, 
which doctors, frankly, use an ambulatory surgery center that probably cost one third what a hospital outpatient surgery operating room would cost. And there's often better outcomes from the surgery center than the hospital, frankly, because the hospital's got a lot of complex patients that bring a lot of diseases and infections into it. So if you stay out in a freestanding ambulatory surgery center, you're much less exposed to some things. And the cost effectiveness and the clinical effectiveness and in and out, the patient experience is often much better. And the doctors, frankly, if on Thursdays they're in the hospital and on Tuesdays and Fridays they're in the ambulatory surgery center, they schedule the patient based on their convenience, not on any insights into one being more cost effective. Well, we can figure that out in our business, in the insurance brokerage consulting advisory business, we can figure those things out with some information and data and say, doctor, if you want us to refer our patients to you through our direct primary care model, we'd like to refer to doctors who are going to use the ambulatory surgery center on all cases where it makes sense for that patient clinically, not just because it makes sense for your schedule. And I don't want you to take them to the hospital on Thursdays because you're at the hospital on Thursdays. And it's going to cost us $5,000 more for that case, for that patient, simply because of your scheduling convenience. That's a live, real example. Essentially, what you're describing is consumerism and plan design, right? Yeah. So whereas you know, 10 years ago, we were trying to get the individual to be the, the healthcare consumer, and I would say to no avail, right. that approach did not work. And in fact, the evidence is fairly conclusive that it, it resulted in significantly higher healthcare costs due to foregoing care and, and, and not seeking necessary treatment. But where we are today is saying that the consumerism almost has to be done at the, at the plan design level, right? To where when somebody engages with the system that you know the guardrails have been put in place to guide that individual within the realm of possibilities within that network to the best physician that's going to achieve the best outcomes and at the best price. I mean, that's yes. that's essentially what you're describing is, is doing the consumerism proactively at the plan level to ensure that you're not going to that provider that has the, the poor outcomes that's four times the cost and uh, has a litany of lawsuits against them and, and all that fun stuff. Yeah. The other piece of this that I'm getting involved in, 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 in some ways that I've, I've been able to see the side-by-side fee-for-service average cost paid was over here and creating a model where these physicians who I know to be and who's we've got data to say are more clinically effective, do high volumes of these things in good ways. They're willing to be paid on an episode of care basis rather than on a fee-for-service basis. So you pre-establish for a total knee replacement, you're going to have the care that's going to last for three days before the operation to 90 days after the operation. So there's a phase or an episode of care there. And you start to manage that patient. You communicate proactively with that patient to make sure they do their preoperative cleaning with Hibiclans, which is reduces infection rate. And that postoperatively, that they take their medications, their antibiotics, they get on. The, it's, it's not real complicated clinically. But patients often fail to do the things that allow them to mitigate the risk of their care. So you put that with a high value doctor and the doctor says, I can see the involvement there. I'll accept a certain fixed payment. I don't need to have a FIFA service churn here. We can get a certain pre-established price for these total knee replacements, for example. And I'll put that out there and I'll compete on the basis of that. And we'll figure it out and balance it. And we'll start steering all of our patients towards these doctors who we've curated, if you will. And we're doing that on behalf of these patients because we know they can get a better result and better outcome. And they can't figure that out on their own. There's no way when you come along and a doctor says, you know, I think you need a total knee replacement that that 
any layperson can get into the market and Google a bunch of stuff and figure out that they're not going to be able to get good insights into what's in their best interest. But we believe there are ways of doing that using clinical outcome data. And it seems that what's what's developed and what's developing, you know, under your guidance and and what is becoming part of the story at One Digital and is part of the story at One Digital is that, you know, you don't have to adopt all the new ideas all at once, right? You don't have to be on the bleeding edge of everything all at once. But something as simple as changing co-pays to go to physician A versus physician B because you have a sense of what outcomes look like between physician A and physician B using fairly simple behavioral economics, you know, charge less for the good doctor and more for the doctor that is, I don't want to say bad, but let's just say less good, <laughs> slightly well, worse, right? Yeah. If you have just simple structures in place, you can have an impact on utilization on people making wise decisions as a consumer based on that type of structure. Yeah. And Scott, I won't walk you through all the details, but Walmart, for example, has been doing the centers of excellence for a decade or more, where they actually have injected themselves into their employee benefit plans and have put in place for certain conditions. Spine cases is one area that I know a good bit about in terms of, and they buy spine services from uh, less than 10 centers in the country. And they provide incentive to their employees to go to these 10 centers because they know they're going to get a better diagnosis, treatment, care, and result an outcome. They'll fly them to that center. They'll fly a loved one with them, care provider. They'll put them up in a hotel as necessary. And they're getting a great ROI on that investment. And it's not just money. They've got some interesting stories about patients showing up at a spine center to get neurosurgery and the neurosurgeon doing, looking over the diagnostics and realizing that patient had cancer. He doesn't need spine surgery. He's got to go see an oncologist. They were going down completely the wrong path. And that's those are tragic cases. You don't want to hear about it. But the last thing you want is somebody that has that kind of illness to get spine surgery to fix a disc that really isn't the problem. Yeah, you can only um, imagine the type of impact that has on the employer-employee relationship when you achieve that type of outcome. When you discover something that's significant, you might feel a stronger affinity toward your employer who put you in that position. <laughs> Yeah. And, and the reason I bring up the Walmart examples and there are other Fortune 500 type entities that you even talked about a few of them that are doing some of these things in a much more proactive way, whether it be on the front end with wellness and direct primary care or with a specialty center of excellence type model for the downstream care. There are absolutely ways and increasingly there's a better information for us to what I like to say is sculpt the network. So rather than Blue Cross bragging about 98% of the claims being in network, what they're bragging about is they're allowing under their you know insurance plan, all these less good doctors to take care of their patients and they couldn't care less. That's just not in their business model. They just are about paying the claims and doing the stuff and getting paid a fee. And I'm sorry to be that way, but that's that's the way I see that. And we can do better. And I think that's the, you know, the reason my job within One Digital exists is because I came out of the healthcare delivery system side of things with a passion for challenging this old status quo, but also with some experience in seeing where the ineffective inefficiencies are. And conversations like this is effectively my job is to sort of say, hey, what are we doing? How can we understand why these trends are going up? How, why can we understand that the high deductible things aren't having the skin in the game strategy isn't working and, and come up with models that take that those same dollars and reinvest them in and models where we look to buy health care that really matters this timely. It's the right care at the right time, the right place, at the right price is the one of the, you know, buzzword type things out there. So well, there's there's a study, and as we conclude this episode, and Mason, this has been fantastic. You're you'll you'll be a returning champion 
on the podcast, you know, there's about five or six notes I took here on my, on my laptop as we're having the conversation of topics that I want to revisit with you in greater detail and really, and really drill into. But I think that this was a good table setting for a, you know, what are some of the challenges that, that the average plan sponsor is facing in trying to navigate the the healthcare system and make sure that they're upholding their fiduciary duties to manage costs and, Mm -hmm. and everything that, that goes along with that. But then also where we're going and where the conversation is leading us and some of the insights we've gained through good, well-intentioned, good ideas on paper, things like high deductible health plans tied with an HSA offered to hourly employees, which, you know, I, I, I've always been somewhat skeptical of. But uh, but at the end of the day, you know, we learn from that experience and we see, hey, there are there are ways of, of doing things that are, that are potentially different. But the other exciting piece of the puzzle that we'll have to revisit the next time you sit down is for the first time in the history of the United States, the layer of uh, opacity has been lifted off the healthcare system through the Consolidated Appropriations Act to where now we actually, we really do have pretty detailed access to pricing data. We do have fairly detailed access to a a lot of information at the provider level that we never had access to before. We have access to negotiated rates. We can see, you know, if a hospital is accepting payment from from this carrier versus that carrier versus this government program and that government program where we have real data. The challenge though, at this point is I, as a mere mortal, when I look at this data, have no way of making heads or tails as to where the true value sits and where, you know, you, you can get suckered into saying, oh my gosh, carrier X pays so much more for this procedure than carrier Y, but you have no insight into the horse trading that went on. You have no insight into what type of, vo- you know, what volume they're anticipating and where that value actually sits. But uh, I'm very excited about what artificial intelligence can bring to this conversation and what AI and generative AI may be able to do with that data that's published and how we may be able to deploy that in an effective in an effective means. Yeah. yeah, Scott, excellent question. Let me leave you with one quick story from my experience. I'll never forget it because it, it was an acute experience in my hospital administrator job. I got some data about the differential infection and readmission rates of a team of neurosurgeons that worked at Carolina's Medical Center, thousand bed flagship hospital of Atrium. And I knew them all fairly well personally, and I knew of them as an excellent high, high value provider of care. This is actually the neurosurgery practice in Charlotte that is on the Walmart network, center of excellence network. These guys are good at what they do. Really smart. And I was very surprised that the data showed me of the five doctors, one of them had a infection and readmission rates that was a roughly twice the average of the rest. And I was very nervous about presenting this information to them because the one doctor that it looked like was the bad doctor from our previous discussion was had the reputation for being the superstar. And as soon as I showed them the data, luckily I was friends with these guys. They didn't beat me up too bad. They laughed at me and said, Mason, this data is not risk adjusted. And I said, oh yeah, it's risk adjusted based on the, and they said, yeah, I know, but that risk adjustment does not understand the nuances of the patients we deal with as neurosurgeons. And that doctor that you're saying is that the, you're right, the data's not wrong, but the patients he's seeing are the ones we refer to him because we wouldn't touch them. Because they're that, that complicated. Much, they're, they're, he's that, yeah. they're, they're more complicated and they're much more likely to have the kind of complications the data was showing, but it was because of the patients, not because of the doctor. So all patients aren't the same. 
And everybody knows that in the healthcare delivery industry, and there's a term called risk adjustment factors and things like that to try to balance that within the data that gives credit for the doctor who's seeing, you know, if all his patients are 80 and all your patients are 40, you're going to have fewer complications, all other things being equal, for example. But there are so many nuances, particularly when you get into highly specialized care, that the sample sizes aren't big enough for the data and the information to to drive and really differentiate in that kind of scenario. So data that's coming is better than nothing. It's better than being blind, but we also can't just steer with that data. You have to have a little local knowledge and you have to have some insights and you have to have a system of care and relationships that you can trust to to help you figure that out. So so, so that makes some sense. We'll conclude by saying, if you're going to make an investment, invest in generative AI that knows how to risk adjust. <laughs> so, or at least appreciates yeah. the difficulty because there may be some conclusions that shouldn't be made. Right, right. And, and, that's, and, and it, when the sample size isn't big enough and the risk adjustment methodologies aren't subtle enough, you simply have got to find a different way to, to determine that. Let that AI generatively figure out where to go for maternity cases and joint replacement cases, but maybe there are certain aspects of subtle brain surgery that ought to be left to something else. Um, and I don't know what that is necessarily. But Well, I imagine I imagine over the next year or so, we're going to have a lot more to say about what the horizon of, of risk adjustment and what the what the future of, of really being able to support diagnostic care and, and making yeah. sure that patient steerage is is as evidence-based as humanly possible is going to change on the he- heels of artificial intelligence. But um, Mason, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, this has been a great, great guest. You've been a great guest and we definitely will want to have you back to unpack some of these concepts. Thank you. Thank you for your time. So I enjoyed it, Scott. Great conversation. You're excellent. Well, well-informed Philly problem, but otherwise. Um, <laughs> well, well, thank you very much. And, uh, and this has been another episode of the Moneyball Benefits Podcast. This is Scott Wham signing off. Thanks a lot.